Hi, Food and Body Freedomers. I'm Nadia Felsch, nutritionist and intuitive eating counselor, here to support your food and body freedom. In this episode, I'll be covering what you need to know about weight. And this is part one of a two-part series. There is just simply way too much to cover at once. Now, weight, as you might appreciate, as you might expect, is an area that I spend a lot of time chatting with clients about. Weight comes up all the time. It might even be the reason that someone starts working with me. And what I've noticed is that weight is discussed in three kind of subject areas. And I'm going to come back to these throughout the two-part episodes. So what we kind of find, or what I find, is that there's weight itself as as a discussion. There's weight and its involvement or not with health. And then there's weight and worth. And I will be covering that in part two. So let's kind of kick off with weight. Weight itself is not a behavior. Like, for instance, a behavior would be physical activity patterns that you might have, how often you exercise. Weight is a biomarker. It is a metric, just like your height, even like your eye color. It's a a marker of your body. And this is a really key distinction that we've got to make up front. And it's really relevant considering how we tend to talk about weight and health. Remember, we're going to come back to that later on in the episode. Weight diversity is really normal. And we've got to say that up front as well. We are all made differently. And at the outset, at the start of our life, this is mostly determined by our genetics. The current estimates for this sit at around 80%, but there's so much yet to be discovered in this realm. And to better explore this, let's imagine a Becky, a Becky who has never attempted to manipulate her weight. I know, I know it's wild, but, but she's out there, I'm sure who has had free access to food her whole life, right? So no limitation, no scarcity, who has been allowed and encouraged to trust her body. Can you imagine? Really wild, I know. That's meant she's able to relate to caring for it, to feeding it, to supporting it. She's been encouraged to accept her body and respect it. And this Becky also has gone through a natural growth cycle like we all do. So that means that around her mid-20s, that's ended, and her body has found its natural adult size and shape. This really could be considered the first set point of her weight. You might have heard that term before. I'm going to go into that a little bit more, but for now, just, just that, her first set point. And that means it's where her body can easefully exist and maintain a weight without any conscious control. So that means at this weight, she is eating to her hunger and fullness cues. She's eating to her preferences and cravings. She's not cutting out things. She's not worried about how much of this and how much of that. She's responding to her body, even moving how it feels right to her, resting how it feels right to her, sleeping, doing everything intuitively to take care of her body. Now, this is the question. Imagine all of that. I know it's wild, but imagine that Becky. The question here is, can her body weight change? Because common thought would probably say no. I'm going to say yes. Factually, her body weight can change. And this is, again, without her trying to change it. So the following factors are just a few, a handful of things that can impact the body weight that she has. Stress, the medical conditions she may have, medication she may take to manage those conditions, Trauma she may have experienced, a change in lifestyle, that could be work, that could be travel, that could be food intake, that could be how much activity, mental health support, pregnancy, 
disability, financial strain, and genetics can all have an impact on her weight, regardless of whether she's trying to change it or not. And can her weight change again from those changes is the next question. So let's say she's had a lifestyle change and her her weight has naturally changed. Can it change again? Yes, and for the same reasons, and it can also change up and down. So with that said, this will continue for Becky's entire life. Her body is responding to life events and to the environment that she exists in to protect her. That's it. That's the only reason. It's to provide her with what she needs. And that change in weight from that mid-20s mark that I referenced to later in her life is normal. You know, inverted commas, it's normal. And without intervention, you know, her trying to do anything, we don't have a figure or even an estimate of what that kind of, let's say, normal deviation in set point weight range might be because we just don't know this information. And to be honest, I would argue that we don't have a lot of Beckys like this to study who have these attributes to their life experience. So yeah, we can make some educated assumptions and I will come back to that. For now, let's imagine Becky does decide to lose some weight. So she intentionally brings in some some manipulation efforts. I want to know what you think will happen. Just kind of sit with that for a moment. What do you think will happen to Becky? She is attempting to change her biology, and that's pretty radical when we position it like that, right? She's not just trying to lose weight. She is. She's trying to change and override her natural biology. So what that means is she is intentionally either or underfeeding and or overexercising to induce a reduction in body weight. Now, this reality immediately increases her preoccupation with food. Guess why? to protect her. It lowers how efficient her body is at using the energy it does have, again, to protect her. And it increases how much fixation she has on weight. It literally drives internalized weight stigma. And this is a really interesting aspect in terms of health and caring. We're going to come back to this. It disconnects Becky to her body's needs because now instead of being aware and connected to what her body's telling her, she's now focused on her goal weight. So she might hunger, she might, sorry, ignore her hunger or ignore her fatigue in order to hit that so-called goal. So maybe she loses weight. What's the likelihood it's sustainable weight loss? I can tell you it's 5%. And do you know why? Because it's fighting biology. And in recovery from intentional weight loss efforts, Becky's set point now increases. So I said I'd come back to this. So our body is now working to protect us. Well, it always is. And it provides us the opposite to what we think we're aiming for or what we are aiming for in weight loss, what we think will happen. The opposite is now going to happen. It makes our new set range higher than before. This is kind of like a stepladder. As you can appreciate, maybe it's your own experience, Becky, that this continues. So when we say the greatest predictor of future weight gain is is dieting, we know that to be true. If you'd like a visual of the set point theory, because I know it can be hard to imagine it and I'm visual, I don't know about you, you can head to www.nadiafelsch.com forward slash episode dash two you'll see the visual representation of set point theory and I hope that that helps.
So in summary, when we think of just weight in general, weight diversity between humans is normal, is so normal. It's natural. And we see this across other species, as Sonia Renee Taylor says so beautifully in her book, highly recommend reading. It's called The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love. She talks about how we embrace this in nature, in flowers and dogs and cows, but we can't do that for ourselves. Again, in, in summary, set point theory, it's a simple answer to a really nuanced question about what happens to our body size. And in short, what it's saying is that we have a range of happy, a range that our body weight can be easily maintained whilst honoring our needs. Now that range can change for a variety of reasons. Mostly of of point here is when we try to lower the set point. Our weight is not under our individual control for the most part. And I know that is opposite to everything we've been told. It's actually influenced by over a hundred factors. And regardless of how it happens, bodies change. It's okay. It's normal. To, To kind of summarize the last bit of this point, losing weight or the intention of losing weight, I should say, is vastly unsuccessful for 95% of us. It also has some serious repercussions on health and well-being, but we'll unpack more of that in a little bit. And you know what? You only need to think about your own experience. It's not much fun, right? So now let's move on to weight and health. The accepted kind of wisdom or assumption is that increased body size, so the bigger that we get, the larger our health risk is. Or we could put this another way, that if I was to gain weight, I have more chance of developing something like diabetes and dying. So our society, therefore, kind of that focus is really obvious. We then say, hey, in order to prevent this happening, because of course we don't want that to happen to us, we think that if we micromanage and we fixate on weight, that we might be okay. Now, before we go any deeper on this, it's really vital, it's critical that we acknowledge fat phobia, a fear and hatred of fat bodies and anti-fat bias, whereby fat bodies are not preferred and they are the subject of weight stigma, is deep, 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 deep in healthcare. And I've got a stigmatizing word content warning. These are not my words, but I just need you to know that to honor the integrity of the research I'm going to be discussing, there are words that are stigmatizing and pathologizing. So in 2014, a study in the International Journal of Eating Disorders found that amongst the professionals that care for folks dealing with eating disorders, 35% of practitioners in that study stated that they felt uncomfortable caring for those who are classified as obese. Now, just sit with that for a second, 35%. What does that say? What kind of care do you think that might lead to or not? What do you think is offered to people in these cases? You know, eating disorders are a really commonly misunderstood uh, area. It's, It's thought that maybe they have a look, that bodies with eating disorders have a look and they don't. And so often we get eating disorders with folks in fat bodies that are commonly overlooked or prescribed weight loss. And this is literally killing people. So that's really important that we understand that fat phobia is part of healthcare. It's it's part of the practice. And consider for a moment, 
without an eating disorder, what it just might be like for someone, maybe this is your experience, to visit a healthcare provider as someone who lives in a fat body. Do the chairs fit my body? Does the blood pressure cuff fit my arm? Will my weight be used against me? And are assumptions made about how I move my body and how I eat based on how I look? Even if you are not someone who identifies as living in a fat body, the weight-centric and fat-phobic approach that is healthcare means that we have a weight-related focus as the norm. That's what's called weight-centric approach. And that means there's an absence of more valuable care, in my opinion, focusing on actual behaviors. Because remember, weight is just like height. It is not a behavior. We, we really need to keep this in mind now as we're coming to health outcomes with weight. So what do we know about weight and health? It's really not as much as news headlines would have us think, nor is it as straightforward. What we do know is that weight and health do not have a cause and effect relationship. And that means one does not cause the other. And this goes for weight across the BMI spectrum. Now, a quick note on BMI. This stands for body mass index, if you're not familiar. It is a truly flawed and problematic tool that's misused within healthcare. I will be recording an entire episode on BMI in the future, though for this episode, I am using BMI to honor the integrity of the research on weight and also to more easily group humans together, which in my opinion is a much more applicable use of BMI. So in a really large study on health risk and BMI relationship, which was a meta-analysis in 2013, this studied millions of people from various parts of the world, including Australia. The largest risk to life lay in the BMI category known as underweight, those with a BMI below 18 and a half. And the lowest health risk, the lowest, was in those categorized as overweight with a BMI of between 25 and 30. And yet, that is not a message that we receive as individuals within society. Now, a large 2012 study that reviewed the impact of healthy lifestyle behaviors on mortality, so on death, across the BMI spectrum of over 11,000 American men and women, found that regardless of body size, the more healthy behaviors that an individual adopted, now I'll get back to what those behaviors were, the less risk of mortality they had. So again, no matter the size of their body, the more healthy behaviors that they adopted, the less risk of mortality they had. Now, those behaviors were stopping smoking or not smoking, reducing their alcohol intake, moving their body more, and eating more vegetables. Now, yes, there were parameters, but I'm not going to get into that today. It is this information right there that's fundamental to the health at every size approach to health. I have talked a fair bit about weight not being a behavior, and in this study, what we really see on display is that exact fact. So considering the entrenched fat phobia in healthcare and society in large, which we'll cover more of in part two, let's review the impact of weight stigma and anti-fat bias on health outcomes for a moment. Because where we as health providers prescribe weight loss and pressure clients in large bodies to do so, it actually has the opposite of impact or effect. A 2011 study found that weight stigma is associated with increased caloric consumption. So what that's saying is shaming folks about their weight literally increases how much they can eat. And I see this type of behavior in clients all the time. 
A 2009 study found that just priming women who are, who are classified as overweight to think about really negative weight-related stereotypes, such as laziness and greed, in other words, inducing their own weight stigma, led them to report significantly less exercise and positive dietary intentions in their own life. They're, they're, the way that they feel makes them less inclined to take care of their bodies. We also need to be critical in nutrition and weight-related research. We need to be really critical that studies about weight and about weight loss are not controlled for weight stigma as a rule. In fact, pretty much all the time. And the impact that that can have where we literally know weight stigma kills people. So what, what this really means in summary is that we don't know what might happen if all humans in all bodies have the same access to healthcare. And that's the problem in weight research from the beginning. It's not a level playing field between the bodies that are studied. The common assumption is that thin is always better. So we don't even look to control for what happens if they're not. What happens if that's not the goal? And the behavioral study that I mentioned before is a great example of where that was done. So the common message that we receive in society is anti-fat and that the heavier that we are, the worse our health will be because of that weight. And every day with clients, I'm seeing the results of people hearing those messages where clients find themselves in this cycle of thinking, or maybe they've been told, I need to lose weight. So I try it and maybe it works for a time. Maybe it doesn't at all. But then what am I left with? Because I know it won't last forever or it can't for most of us. From my clinical perspective, the, the biggest issue here is that what we're left with and what I see in clients all the time is that we're left with demotivated, unhappy and less well individuals. And so my point is, is this, how is any of this no matter the size of your body, how is this focus on weight promoting health? It's not is the freaking answer. Let's say, let's put this into real kind of context for a moment. Let's say that you're told, you've been told that you are pre-diabetic and that's a, a problematic term, but we'll deal with that another time in another episode. The common recommendation for this would be to focus on weight, maybe to lose weight. And yet, or, or I should I should correct myself. It may be to restrict a diet as well and or with weight. So let's cut something out. Let's focus on the diet. And yet restriction in our diet leads for most of us to weight cycling, which is metabolically damaging and adversely impacts our insulin regulation. The exact thing that you are apparently at risk of. Instead, instead of talking about weight, instead of talking about restriction, what could we focus on? What's actual evidence-based healthcare? In this example of pre-diabetic, we could include a focus on consistent regular eating. The metabolism loves consistent regular eating. We could look at establishing a meaningful, accessible pattern of physical activity to help manage those blood glucose levels. These are powerful, effective, evidence-based interventions that do not focus on weight. And you know what? You could throw in almost anything as a condition here, and we got stuff. We got heaps of stuff to work with. You know, observational studies on weight and health behaviors show that an increase in our fitness, our cardio fitness, is associated with less of 
a mortality risk. So a greater reduction, I should say, in a mortality risk than intentional weight loss. So, so again, I know I stumbled there. Increasing our fitness has better outcomes for our, our death risk than trying to lose weight, but we don't get that message. And instead, the collective thought, the societal pressure is that if we focus on weight, it's going to get me better health. And yet this is the crux. Weight is not a behavior. This is a flawed kind of focus from the outset. It's really clear as well that weight loss doesn't automatically mean improved health outcomes. I I couldn't have made that more clear, I hope. So if there are health concerns or a health concern, decreasing your body size doesn't necessarily mean that we get rid of those conditions. We blame the weight always, but we actually don't know that that is true. We do know how to help in other ways. We also, and this is really important when we're talking about health, we don't know how to make intentional weight loss sustainable for long periods of time for life. And we don't know how to limit the harm that it has on us. The harm is really significant. Intentional weight loss results in weight cycling, and that's where our set point increases. It can result in disordered eating, negative body image, lowered immune function, decreased bone density, especially important for women, and an increased cardiometabolic risk from the weight cycling. You know, often we associate, I hear this from clients all the time, feeling better with my weight. I'll feel better when I do this. I'll feel better when I'm in this body. But the thing is, it's not the only thing that's going on. And I will revisit this in part two. For now, I want to, I want to acknowledge, and I think it's important that we acknowledge this belief is a consequence of fat phobia and living with our own anti-fat bias where thin is always better. We have created the narrative that being fat is the worst thing that could happen. We shame and stigmatize those who are in the hope of making them unfat. And yet what we're collectively doing is making the chance of future weight gain and lower health outcomes more likely. It's a real shit show. So in summary, weight loss is not a guarantee of health, nor is having a smaller body. Intentional weight loss is not sustainable for the majority of us, and it's not without its harm. Even if weight loss was effective at improving health, which again, it is not, there is still no reason to treat humans in fat bodies with disrespect or giving them lackluster health care based on the size of their body. We have no room for anti-fat bias in ethical healthcare. It's killing people and it's not okay. Also shaming folks about their weight, no matter the size, is a really shitty motivator. We have so many better tools to work with when it comes to health behaviors. And clearly, health can be improved without a weight loss target. And in fact, it's actually more successful and more sustainable. So what can we do? Where can we go from here? I think it's really important that we unpack and unlearn for ourselves our own weight bias. And I don't need to tell you that if you live in a marginalized body, this is going to be higher. This is going to be harder. We need to equally contribute. We need to all contribute to dismantling the systems of oppression that make all of this possible, that make fat phobia normal by calling it out when you see it and opting out of the whole system yourself. That's exactly what leaving diet culture is about. 
We can also focus, again, bringing it back to ourselves, on what we can do to feel a particular way. If we want to feel more energy, we don't need to focus on weight. Focusing on weight is not a guarantee that we will feel more energetic. If we want to feel like we're eating a more varied diet or we're focusing on our sleep quality, these are all possible, especially when you work with a professional, non-diet professional, someone like me. You don't have to lose weight to gain health. And seeing results through actual evidence-based healthcare is so possible. You know, some uh, a, a client shared with me recently something that's really stuck in, in my mind, focusing on the behavior for her of healing her relationship to food. That was her target behavior. Her dietary pattern now is overall more nutrient-dense without a focus on her weight. And I ask and I invite you, what might a health goal without weight look like to you? Now, weight and worth. Many, many, many times we say it's about our health. We say that's why we want to lose weight. And when we're presented with health-promoting behaviors to participate in, we're not interested because they don't so-called solve the problem of how we feel in our bodies. Now, that problem and task is actually taking away weight from worth as a linked aspect. This is really important self-work, one that deserves its very own episode, and that is next time on Food and Body Freedom. Thank you for joining me today. I know this is a lot. It's likely to counter everything you've heard and believed maybe your whole life. And go you, seriously, go you for being curious. If you enjoyed this episode and gained value from it, I ask that you rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That goes such a long way to getting this message out there and helping to normalize it. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, come and join my Food and Body Freedom community on Facebook. Everyone is welcome. See you next time. If you'd like to get in touch with me, learn about my current group program offerings and client availability, the best way to do that is via my website, www.nadiafelsch.com. You'll also find my Facebook group, Food and Body Freedom, and on Instagram and TikTok, my handle is at Nadia Felsch.